Good morning. So there's a lot more of you than when I normally just sing and do things, so thanks for that. Um, if you're out there thinking, wow, Joel got a lot taller and a decent bit less good looking, um, I would understand your confusion, uh, but I'm not Joel. My name is Zach. Um, I've been coming to Res City for since day one, really. Um, kind of interesting how I got plugged in. We didn't actually know a single person when Ashley, my wife, and I were kind of looking to join the church plan. Uh, Joel and Julie got up on stage at the church that we came from, and they're like, hey, we're starting a new church. And Ashley and I were like, what the heck, let's go talk to these people. So uh, they didn't totally scare us off. Uh, certainly a little bit weird if you've met the two of them. Uh, but, you know, we kind of got to know them a little bit. We had them over for dinner. I think I grilled them for a good 45 minutes on their theology. Uh, and lo and behold, we ended up here. Um, so I got to be honest with you all, though. I've been here, I've been in front of you guys for like well over two years now. I'm crazy nervous to be in front of you guys this morning. So the pity laughs you're giving me, I'm all in on it. I love it. So keep that going. Remember, smile with your eyes. I can't see your mouths. Um, so my title here at Rest City is the Director of Corporate Worship or something to that effect. Uh, I help coordinate the music on Sundays as well as do some other creative planning and things like that um, for us here. And I've been doing music for really quite some time, so it was a really good natural fit as I got plugged in here at Res City. Um, my day job outside of that is being a manufacturing engineer at a place called Collins Aerospace down south of the city's little ways. Uh, we build airplane parts and a handful of rocket ship parts. It sounds a lot more intense than it actually is. My day-to-day -day job mostly is pretending like I know what I'm doing and being pretty good at approximating math. Um, so... For my engineer friends out there, that joke really hit home for you. But everyone else is like, I don't know what you're saying. Um, so above all those things, though, about me, um, let's see here. Nope, nope. Here we go. Uh, I am now a father of two as of two weeks ago. Um, so my wife is here with me as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it was a lot of hard work for me, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, those are my, those are my baby girls. Uh, Harper is two years old now, or just going to be two. And Olivia, like I said, is two weeks old. Uh, yeah, and that picture in the middle there is us the day we got home from the hospital. So uh, the bags, you can see them in my eyes there, and they have not gone away since. Um, I'm convinced that that's just a state of how I exist from now on. So I absolutely love being a dad. Um, I love everything about it, the, the quirkiness that is now socially acceptable for me to have because I'm a dad now. Um, and there's something about being a parent that's super fun. This doesn't really have anything to do with the sermon, but a lot of people ask, like, hey, how, how's parenthood? Like, how are things going? Um, and parenthood is crazy because it teaches you to love something in a way that you didn't quite understand before you were a parent. Like, you can be good at loving people and caring for people, but there's something unique when it's this little helpless child. Um, and a great fun story about that, about how things are going for us so far. Um, you change a lot of diapers, uh, and it can be roulette when you're changing a diaper, right? You don't necessarily know, is this baby done? Are they not done? And I had one such experience recently with this super cute two-week-old Olivia. Uh, thought she was done. Turns out she wasn't, and I was wearing a poop glove. Uh, shortly thereafter. So if you're curious about how parenthood is going for us so far, that sums it up pretty well. But when, when you're going through it, you're like, you know, this is fine. This is okay. I'm fine, covered in poop, but we're going to move on. It's okay. 
Uh, okay. Anyways, to get to the point of why I'm here, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go ahead and get started today. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Um, thank you for these people. Um, God, I, I pray that you might use me today. Um, help me to be a minister of your word. Help me to take care of your word. Um, let the words that the people hear today not be of me. Um, let them hear from you today, God. Let them hear your word and your voice today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to pick back up where we've been in our series in Philippians. Um, and we're going to pick up in Philippians 3, verses 18 through 21. Um, so I'll read those here for us. For as I've often told you before, and tell you now, again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, and their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So, kind of where we're at right now in the letter, um, the first couple of chapters, um, Paul is really just gushing encouragement onto the Philippians. Um, he's very happy with how the Philippians have been operating as a church. They're holding fast to the truths that Paul has been preaching to them. And that's really, he's, it's a very positive tone, you could say, through the first couple chapters. Um, and then Joel kind of talked about this a few weeks back. Once Philippians 3 kind of hits, we see kind of a sharp turn, and a lot of people think that Paul's probably recounting something that he had already written to them a previous time. That's kind of why the tone changes so aggressively. Um, but it shifts to really, really hefty, aggressive warnings uh, to a particular group of people um, that are maybe trying to stir up trouble uh, in Philippi. And this little section is kind of right in line with what that message is. It kind of picks up right where that leaves off. Um, and then it also kind of turns around a little more. Um, kind of the crux of what he's doing in this passage is he's really saying there are two key groups of people that Paul's talking about here. Um, you have, come on, there we go. Uh, you have the citizens of heaven, and then you have the citizens of destruction which consequently sounds exactly like an 80s hairband. Um, so I kind of dig that. Uh, so the first logical question we should ask is, who are this first group that we're talking about here? The, the first one he brings up here is the citizens of destruction, or he calls them enemies of the faith in the text. Um, these could be people that we call Judaizers, or kind of people who have come behind where Paul was doing his ministry and said, hey, this Paul, the thing that Paul is teaching, this is great, um, but there's also some of these Jewish laws that you should hold on to as well. They're kind of preaching a gospel and something else message. Um, these could be, um, these enemies of the faith could just be persecutors the way Paul was a, just a straight up persecutor of the church. Um, they could just be some other debaucherous group as well. Um, Again, the widely held belief is that it's the same people that Paul talked about earlier in chapter 3. Um, he called them dogs as well, which is, you know, like I said, pretty hefty tone. Um, I think Joel referred to these people as trolls as well a few weeks back. They're people who are just kind of picking at the message that Paul is preaching. And it's likely that these enemies called out here are the same, um, same such group. What we're going to come to find out, though, is that I personally don't think it's 
all that important to the messaging of the text if it's one of these particular groups. I think you can really take the message and apply it a lot of different ways, um, which is super great. Um, so in his commentary about this, Moises Silva says this. He says, whether one accepts this identification, saying whether you accept that they're the same group he's talking about earlier in chapter three, these Judaizers, whether you accept this or not, it is still possible to appreciate the force of verse 19 insofar as the group represents a pattern of behavior to be shunned by the Philippians. We may, argue, uh, we may argue that Paul is here characterizing an extreme manifestation of the selfishness that was already threatening the Philippian community. Um, so it seems most likely here that the enemies are the same as what was referenced in 3. He says, look out for the dogs and the evildoers, is the other word he uses for them. Um, and that is really, really aggressive language when it's laid up against everything he's been doing in the rest of chapter two. He's saying, you guys are great, you're great, you're great. These people are really, really bad. Um, and there are a few key things that I think kind of get flagged as markers of this group um, as Paul's writing this out. What are kind of the, the earmarks of this group of people? How do I know to watch out for them? What does it look like? Um, and here are a few things that I think Paul says. Um, the emphasis of these people, the emphasis of their lives is on themselves. Um, they celebrate things that are in fact shameful and the ultimate fruit of their work is destruction. Um, so to kind of look at that a little bit, the emphasis is on themselves. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to see, right? It says their God is their stomach. Um, what they're in for is to ultimately benefit themselves, not to benefit the kingdom. Um, and it's interesting when you take that and look at what they think that they're doing, or at least outwardly what they say that they're doing, because they say they're preaching a more true gospel than what Paul is preaching. But in reality, what Paul is saying is, no, these people say they're preaching this gospel that's good for you, but in reality, they're doing it to benefit their own stomach, to benefit themselves. Um, they celebrate things that are, in fact, shameful. So a little earlier in chapter 3, um, Paul kind of gives, hey, here's all the things that I could celebrate as a Jew. Um, I have all this street cred as a Pharisee. Um, and that, but he goes on to say that I, that's nothing compared to the riches I have in the gospel. Um, but these people, so they're celebrating that which Paul could celebrate. And Paul argues, well, that's not worth celebrating at all. In fact, that's really your own shame. Um, and then the last one here, their ultimate end is destruction. The fruit of the work that they're doing isn't going to lead to, you know, just like the analogy of a grape on a vine, the work they're doing isn't going to produce nice, lush grapes on a vine. It's only going to produce death and destruction. That's the ultimate end to what they're doing. So that's really fun, right? That's <laughs> his first group. Um, and then kind of like I said, this letter flips to this negative tone. We see it do that exactly again, just on a dime. Um, it, and this happens a lot with how Paul writes it. I have a, a good friend uh, who always tells me, look out for the but moments, especially in Paul's writings, because they're so prevalent. There is but God, and this one it says, but our citizenship. Um, and uh, it's, it's really great to see that because it tells such more of a deep message because you have, here's all this description of one thing, 
but this is what's true of you. There's a lot of hope hidden in those messages, um, and that's very true to this one as well. Because in verse 17, he gives them a command to follow his apostolic example, which if you look at Paul's street cred, is a lot easier said than done. He's a pretty hard example to follow. Um, he says to be imitators of him, just like he's an imitator of Christ. Um, and then verse 20 and 21, very much pick right back up on that. Um, again, from the same commentaries before, Moises Silva says, um, moreover, the predominant thought of this section flows out of the exhortation in verse 17. Verses 18 and 19, though not parenthetical, they're not really meant to be an aside, um, though not parenthetical, are intended to reinforce that exhortation. Because the Philippians' need to follow the right example was Paul's main concern, verses 20 to 21, too, were meant to support the apostolic command. And what better reason is available than the reminder that their true citizenship is a heavenly one? So, uh, let's see. Where am I at here? So to recap that, Paul's telling them, I need you to follow the example that me and the apostles are setting for you. Here are these people that are close to me. Be imitators of us, right? The people Paul's preaching to probably didn't see Jesus's ministry in person. So it's very important for them that they do have a true Christ-like example to look to. Um, so Paul tells them, well, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, and then kind of gives them the, here's this little bit about this group. Here's what you, you, know, you shouldn't do. But here is what's true of you. As you're following me, you are a citizen of heaven. That's true of you. Um, so it kind of flows right out of that. So... Um, my high school t English teacher is going to be really proud of what I'm about to do. Uh, Julie, I know you're an English person. You're, you're going to love this. So, maybe you won't. This is like eighth grade stuff. Um, I'm an engineer. I do math. I don't do, I don't do letters. That's, that's not my thing. Um, so, there are a whole bunch of different little tricks that writers will use to bring emphasis to different parts of, of a work that they're doing. Um, literary techniques is what they're called. Um, one such one is called juxtaposition. Super long word. I'm still happy that I remember that word. But what it's meaning is taking two opposite ideas and you smash them right next to each other because when they're together, it brings emphasis to what you're saying more than those two independent ideas could bring on their own. Uh, and that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He says, here's this group, these dogs, these evildoers. Here's what their ultimate end is. But here's what's true of you. Here's what your ultimate end is. Your ultimate end is fruit and good works. And, and here's what he says here. The key markers of these citizens of heaven, that's us, that's what we are, kind of their ultimate end here is um, they have an eternal perspective, right? They're not focused on them. They're focused heavenward. Um, and their ultimate end is to be made new, to be made into heavenly beings, um, and it's worth noting that these are nearly opposite alternatives on each issue that was brought forth. Um, the citizens of destruction have a perspective that's limited to earthliness, and citizens of heaven have that perspective that's eternal. Citizens of destruction have an ultimate end that is destruction, while the citizens of heaven have an ultimate end that is to be made new, right? And in a way, is destruction, but it's life coming out of destruction, um, and like I said, Paul achieves this weightiness to this section by bringing these together. It tells something more than just these could be told on their own. Um, 
So I think the next, oh, come on. No, could I get the next slide, please? Thanks. Um, the next logical question to ask, right, that kind of tells us what is the text talking about. It's talking about these two groups of people. The next logical question, in my opinion, is why do I care or what does this mean for me? Or how does this make sense for us today? And as I kept going through this passage, I couldn't get away from this tiny little section of words. And when I talked to Joel about this the first time when I found that this was going to be my passage, um, I was like, hey, I think I want to talk about this. I don't think it's really the point of the passage, but I think it's really worth noting. But as I kept going through and going through and going through, I'm like, man, this is actually really, really important to this passage. And those few words are here. Paul says, even with tears, as he's talking about the enemies. Um, Paul doesn't say, yeah, these enemies are going to cause themselves destruction and they can do their own thing, right? I don't care. Uh, it hurts Paul to the point of tears that there exists people who are enemies of that which he is preaching. Um, and again, keep in mind the harsh language that he just used earlier. Um, he directly called them dogs and evildoers. Um, he didn't talk about them lightly, but even so, he's not willing to turn to apathy as he addresses them. He addresses them even with tears. Um, so what does this look like for us today? Um, oops, here we go. Um, there are no real shortage of enemies of the cross. Um, you have people who preach, um, there, there are kind of a few different examples of this. To make a parallel to kind of maybe what these Judaizers were, um, you have people who preach something like a gospel and something else. Um, a good example of that, I think, in my opinion, is like a prosperity gospel or health and wealth gospel. A gospel that says, yep, Jesus died for your sins on the cross, but also he wants to make you healthy and wealthy. Um, that's kind of a good parallel for what I think that sees, uh, that's like today. Um, you also have some school of thoughts um, that, are, um, that kind of avoid absolute truth, or maybe to put it you know, in a little bit different perspective, um, tolerance is a really good thing. Being tolerant of other people and of s different schools of thought as you is important, and it's really well-intentioned. Um, but it's popular to say, well, a, a, the true way to live is to kind of have an uncritical tolerance of other thoughts, or to take other thoughts and say, yep, they're all like, that's, that, is, that is truth, when in reality, um, the gospel says, no, this is what's right, and this is what's true. Um, you could also just put another, an, as far as what are enemies of the cross, you could say that any other anti-faith or just anti-Christian group could also fall into that category for the sake of this discussion. I think the discussion still holds true. So the significant part of this little, even with tears, message is that it frames how these two groups of people interact. We as the citizens of heaven, how do we now go and interact with the enemies of the cross or those citizens of destruction? Um, and spoiler, I think we get it wrong a lot. I know I get it wrong a lot. And I think there are two kind of ways we can kind of, if we're on the straight and narrow, I think there are two ways we can kind of fall off. Uh, the first one is confrontational hostility. And the second one I call passive indifference. Oops. Um, so confrontational hostility. Uh, 
this, I think we, when you even think about that, I think you're probably already building a stereotype in your head of this person. Um, but I think it's people who actively seek out and attack their enemies um, of the, whatever school of thought that they have. Um, it seems most common in my observation that these days this is picking fights with people in the comment section on Facebook. Um, uh, it really, I think social media in general has kind of really ramped this up because it's really easy to attack people when you don't have to do it face to face. Um, kind of the main markers of this though, it's, it's confrontation, and confrontation's not bad, right? Confrontation's important, um, but it's confrontation to the point of hostility towards a person. Ultimately, this first group says, I don't really care about you or your salvation or eternity. I care about the fact that I'm right. I know I'm right, and that's what's most important. And I'm going to attack you because I know that you're wrong. Um, the motive base that kind of action flows out of from this is a place of pride and individualism, right? It's, I am the most important person in the room, and I'm right, and I'm going to make sure you know that. So it's very much built from a place of pride. The second group up here is a group that kind of acts with passive indifference, or a second failure that we can act with is passive indifference. Um, it's, it's more of a, when you approach disagreements, it's more of a, you know what, you do you kind of an attitude. Um, it's looking at someone um, where you know that their ultimate end is destruction, and your response is, you know what, I'm going to let you do whatever it is you want to do. Um, you know, that's your right to do that. Um, it emphasizes being not pushy. And again, it's, it's actually usually pretty well-intentioned. Um, I think I tend to fall into this one, so I'm clearly a little bit biased. But again, this ultimate, ultimately this stance also says, I care more about what you think of me than I do about your salvation or eternity. Um, I'm, I'm far more concerned with not looking like a pushy Christian than I am about, you know, your ultimate end or the fruits of what your life is going to bring you. Um, and again, the motive base by which this one is flowing is still a place of pride um, and a concern for your own image. Um, when I think about my own tendencies, um, I definitely fall into the latter here um, when it comes to which one of these am I guilty of. I would generally say that I'm a non-confrontational person. I would call myself a pacifist. I'm really not much of a fighter. Um, you could call me a people pleaser, and that'd probably be pretty accurate as well. When I'm faced with a challenge to whatever I'm thinking, my gut reaction is to really shrink down um, and to just kind of hide. Um, I can think about any number of times where I was maybe at a lunch table at work back when half a dozen of us could sit together um, and rolling through a conversation, which most of the time is pretty docile, you know, office kind of jibber-jabber, um, and then a conversation would turn pretty unwholesome, and it could be, it, you know, there were times where it was like a direct attack to people of religion, or where it was just really unwholesome in the way they talked about other people we worked with, um, or various social issues, um, and I distinctly remember thinking, man, I should really say something. Like, oh, this is not good. I should stand up and say something. And I didn't. I tucked my head in like a tornado drill, waited for the storm to blow through. As soon as it went back to the typical office talk, I perked right back up. 
And here's the thing that is really tricky about this, though, because from the outside, that condition's really, really hard to diagnose. Um, what just happened to me in that discussion, my friends wouldn't see it the same way that I just saw it. My friends would probably say things like, man, Zach's really accepting. Or they'd say things like, he's, he's not pushy at all. Like, I know he's a Christian, but like, he really doesn't push that on me. He doesn't force that on me. Um, they say things like, Zach's really open to conversation, really open to dialogue. Um, and that's why I think this failure, in terms of how do we approach our enemies of the faith, I think this failure is, is really attractive because it's very celebrated from the outside. I think people look at it and say, man, that, that looks like a pretty good, like, man, this guy's doing it right. Like, I can see how he talks to people and he does a really good job. When in reality, internally, I'm like, I just don't want to seem like a jerk to these people, so I'm just not even going to challenge them. Which is, is not how Paul addresses it in this, kind of in this section. And um, if you're like me, which I'm sure at least a few of you are, you'd probably say, well, if I have to belong to one of these two groups, I'm definitely picking this one. Um, but ultimately, here's what I'm here to tell you is these two groups are the same. Both of these groups are saying, I'm most important above and beyond other things. And all of my actions are flowing from a place of pride. Um, so when, especially if you're like me and you like to build up scarecrows and stereotypes of these different failures as you go through, in my head, the stereotype for a hostile person was a lot worse of a dude than the stereotype I was building for an indifferent person. Um, but in reality, these are both things that are coming from pride and that aren't caring for the people that Paul clearly is caring for about, as he says he's in tears when he talks about them. Uh, and here's what's sweet. Paul's approach is not anything like either one of these two, but also kind of like both of them. <laughs> um, it's, at its core, it's very different. And he addresses it earlier in the letter. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. So he addresses it directly. He, he says, don't think about yourself less, is what he's trying to say. He said, you need to be willing to put others as more important than yourselves. That includes your self-image. That includes your perception of what people think of you, and that includes your popularity. You might lose some popularity points. People might look at you a little weird or a little differently, but that's more important then, or, or that's not as important as their ultimate destiny. Um, and this doesn't just tell us something about Paul here. This tells us something very special about God as well. Because when God looks at his enemies and the enemies of the cross, he doesn't look at them and smite them down where they stand. Uh, he doesn't look at them indifferently. Um, he looks at them and his heart breaks. And we, we see that, right? Because obviously those people are still here. He hasn't smote them down. And he sends his son to die on the cross. You wouldn't do that for somebody that you're indifferent about. So when we think about how we as the citizens of heaven approach those who are this, the enemies of the cross, the evildoers, the dogs, the citizens of destruction, um, we're approaching them in tears, as Paul did, and as God would.
Um, so that's kind of, as I went through this, I was like, man, that's, that's important. We have to understand that to understand how we move through the rest of this passage. Um, and we're going to jump ship here a little bit to a different point of application. Because um, when I read verses like this, uh, I get re- when I see like a bad example and a good example, I get really tempted to say, well, this is what I ought to do, and this is what I ought not do. Um, and if you read through this passage, and, you, and that's what you read, and that's what you get, I don't think you'd necessarily be incorrect. If you looked at this passage and said, okay, this is what the evildoers do, well, I, I shouldn't do that. And this is what the citizens of heaven do, so I, I should do that. Um, technically, that's correct, but it's really shallow, and I think you've missed a lot. Um, I think it's worth looking at a symptom versus a root cause kind of a discussion. Uh, and Julie talked about this a, a little ways back. Um, and she used uh, in a, a tool called the five whys, which immediately triggered me because that's very much what we use at work uh, and what the upper management people always ask for. Did you do your five whys? Sorry. Uh, uh, it's, but that's, that's a good example, right? Because it's worth it to look deeper at, at this discussion, right? If all we do is look at our tendencies and our surface level stuff, we're not going to find the ways that the reality of these failures exist very much pervaded down into our actions. Um, one way to look at this is medically, right? Say I'm getting off this stage and I'm obviously clumsy. My arms are the entire length of my body. Uh, let's say I fall down and like break my leg. <laughs> that's a super extreme example. But let's say that's what happens. Um, that's going to hurt a lot. It's going to hurt a lot, a lot. And I could just deal with that. Right? Oh, I have pain? I could just take care of that with some form of a painkiller. I could just keep going ibuprofen. I'll feel better. Um, but ultimately, I'm just going to hurt again. Or I could get even worse. Like, not only will I just hurt again, the next time I hurt, it'll go worse because I left it unchecked. There was a problem that I had that I was just unwilling to actually go and fix. Whereas if I would have done a lot more of a painful route or a deeper dive into what happened, I would go to the doctor, get it all fixed. That's a lot more of a hassle than just popping some pain pills. Um, But it's going to actually fix my problem. That's where the real problem is, is that my leg's broken. Um, And this is something I confront in my workplace all the time. Um, I'm a manufacturing engineer. Um, So we have machinery, we build stuff, and things go wrong a lot when you're trying to build things. Um, You have people with hands putting stuff together. They're going to make mistakes. Machinery is going to break down. Um, And it's really easy as an engineer to just say, oh, well, this is going wrong, so if I just tweak this little thing here, it'll fix itself and it'll be good. But if I just take cursory looks at when my equipment's breaking or when things are going wrong, odds are that those conditions that are making something fail are just going to get worse and worse and worse, and I'm just going to keep covering it up and putting Band-Aids on, you know, gunshot wounds, for lack of a better, you know, cliche. Um, So it's really, really important as we look at this. Don't purely look at this and say, well, this is what I ought to do, this is what I ought not do, Um, because you're going to kind of miss the point, and it's just not going to be all that helpful for you. Um, And... um, there's kind of a, a key aspect into framing this whole thing that I, I'm going to say is the solution to the problem in terms of an identity thing, 
when we look at how, what, is, what does Paul offer as the hope here, right? What's the solution? Where do we go? Um, and it's in the back half of this verse here. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and I want to really hone in on the word citizenship. Um, so when I was in college, uh, I lived in this house, this, this horrific, ugly, built in 1890 white house up in Dinkytown near the U of M. I lived in there with nine other gentlemen. So we're all a part of the same uh, campus ministry group, um, and we all went to live in this house. Uh, the years I lived in there was the third and fourth years that it had been kind of this ministry house, where the same group had just rented it and just kind of taken it over from the previous year. Um, but when this house was being like planted, like, hey, let's make a house together, um, there was a few names thrown around for the house. Um, so keep in mind, 10 guys, right? 18, 19, 20-year-old guys, just absolute meatheads at this point. Um, a few of the names, the uh, first one was the Taj Man Hall, <laughs> which isn't bad. It's not bad. Um, another one thrown out there was the Tool Shed. Descriptive, to say the least. Uh, my personal favorite that was thrown out as this was being launched uh, was the Testoster Home. Um, I think that's probably my personal favorite. Um, but there was one guy who stood up in this discussion um, and he said, hey guys, this is all a lot of fun, but let's think about what we have an opportunity to do here. I think we should call this house the embassy. Uh, and 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So he goes up there, he writes this verse on a board, um, and that framed how future years would look at what it meant to live in this house together, in a place like Dinkytown near the U of M on a college campus. Um, the idea of an embassy and being an ambassador um, there's an aspect of it that's it's very outward, right? There's an aspect of it that's an identity, right? Think about what an ambassador does. They are a representative in a foreign land representing their homeland. It's clear that in a lot of, in a lot of places where ambassadors will go, you could even just look at that person and tell, you know, you're not from here. Like, you're from somewhere else. Like, you don't quite fit, um, when it comes to the embassy itself, that is foreign soil. The actual ground that the embassy is on doesn't actually belong to the country that it's residing in. It belongs to the homeland. Um, and that's what I think this citizenship really looks like. I think it looks like being an ambassador. Um, and that's what was so special about getting to live in this house is what we really sought to do is we want this to be a place of refuge for other Christians in a place that is very uh, hostile to faith around us. The way of life on a college campus, especially in a party town, kind of like Dinkytown was, was in, in a lot of ways very opposed to the faith and was very draining for a lot of people trying to live in that environment. We try to treat it as, you know, this is a place of refuge. This is safe for you to be at. We wanted it to be a place where people would look at and see, okay, those people are different. 
Like, they don't quite do things the same way other people who live here do them. Um, Citizenship implies loyalty to the place that you're from. You belong to that which you are a citizen of. An ambassador, like if I'm an ambassador for the United States to some other country, I belong to the United States. I'm loyal to the United States. And I reap the benefits that come with being a citizen of the United States. Here's the other thing that's really important about this verse. It doesn't say you will be Christ's ambassadors. It says you are Christ's ambassadors. Um, This eternity, this kind of title we get for eternity begins now. We're in it. We are Christ's ambassadors. We live that way now. Um, And Michael Gorman expands on this. Um, He says, they are not citizens of the empire and culture of Rome, which pretends to offer the world a savior and lord in the person of the emperor. They are not a colony of the powerful. They are a part of the colony of heaven, of the true lord. And so their current status is to be a body characterized by humiliation, as was that of their Lord while on earth. We are residents of this place that's around us, right? We are in some ways subject to it insofar as we are able to be. But ultimately, we're subject to someplace else, and our home is heaven. So, there's some really beefy theological stuff in there. Those are a lot of things that are really heady and really honestly pretty hard to get to. Um, The thing about it is like, it's pretty simple, right? Like getting from A to B on it isn't all that complicated, but it's certainly not easy. Um, And I think there are a handful of hurdles that kind of come with going through this whole exercise. Um, and I, I can, I'm going to share a couple of them with you here, uh, just from my personal experience. Um, the first one for me is, I don't always care about the people around me, right? It's clear that Paul tells us to, uh, but I, I don't always feel that way. And the second is that a lot of times I'm honestly not all that eager for Christ's return. Um, and that could be kind of a weird, kind of weird thing to think about, right? And I think, when I think about the first one, what I keep coming back to when I'm in moments where I, I don't care about these people or like when I see a group of people on the news or, or, I, or I maybe see a group of people from a distance, like, man, I, I don't even want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Like, I don't, I don't care about you guys. Um, proximity is the antidote to apathy. So what I mean by that is the closer you are to something, inevitably, you will begin to care about it more. So I think if you, if you have a hard time like caring about people, like that's something you struggle with, and I struggle with it a lot, where I'll, I'll look at someone and be like, man, you know, you are very far off. Like, you are living very much as an enemy. I'm not even going to touch it. Get closer to those people, right? Get closer to them, just period, without an agenda, and you're going to begin to care about them more. Because the closer you are to someone, it's inevitable that you're going to start to be exposed to, you're going to humanize them a little bit more than you probably are if you don't care about them. Um, and if, if you still find you're having a hard time, then branch out more, honestly. I, th- I think the solution to it is pretty simple, at least in my experience. Um, as I've had a hard time, 
you just got to branch more. Find people that you just don't agree with. And there are plenty of people out there. You can do it. Um, and then when it comes to the return of Christ, this is a really tough one, and I definitely think I struggle with this one, probably more than maybe any other like theological thing to get like excited about. This is one that I really struggle with. Um, and it, one such reason, I think, is because my life is pretty cushy and comfortable. Um, it, it just, that's the reality. I've been blessed, right? Um, I've grown up in a way that hasn't challenged me all that much. I've grown up in a place that lets me believe what I believe without repercussion. I don't have to hide it. I can speak it freely. Um, and that isn't true for a lot of people and certainly was not true for Paul. Um, so I think when, when you kind of see it that way, you can see, oh, it makes sense why Paul would be really excited about Christ's return because he's not living all that great of a life right now. Um, he's really persecuted. Um, and the church is really persecuted. And I've talked to ministries before who are, or mini, um, missionaries before, who are in places in the world where it's a lot less popular to be a Christian, in, so, in, in places where it's illegal to speak out about your Christian faith and dangerous to be a Christian. And they've said Christians who live in those places pray that the American church would face some more hostility and more persecution because of how it grows their faith and their desire to see Christ return and, their, and the focus that you have on what flows from your day-to-day -day actions when you have a perspective of Christ returning. Um, so what's the logical step? Get uncomfy with your life. Um, in some ways, that can mean financially get a little bit uncomfy. That can mean give a little more if that's what God's going to put on your heart and what you have to do. That can mean get uncomfy with where you live. And there's a lot of really comfortable places to live in the Twin Cities, and there are a lot of uncomfortable places to live in the Twin Cities. Um, so think about that as you go through. Try to find ways to get more uncomfy. And I think between those two things, branching out more and getting uncomfy kind of goes in the same vein as that. Those things are going to fight our apathy with these couple of hurdles we see to the faith or to branching out to the enemies of the faith. So kind of the challenge to you all um, is to live in the reality that you are already holding. You are a citizen of heaven. It's not something that you're going to see thousands of years from now. You exist as that right now. You're an ambassador for Christ. You are, you are on foreign soil here on earth. You belong to God. Um, the hope here is that you are not destined for destruction. You don't have to burden yourself feeling like you are destined for destruction because you're not. God has already snatched you from that. He's already finished that work on the cross. And that's where we're going to close it today. Um, we're going to enter from that into a time of communion. Um, we take communion every week. Um, we take it as a reminder and a symbol of what the gospel is. Um, the bread representing Christ's body broken for us and the juice representing his blood shed for us on the cross. Um, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? Um, 
So until that glorious day that Christ returns, let this be a window into that time where we'll be made new, be made like Christ's resurrected body. Um, as you take communion, um, there will be someone up here who will pray for you. If you would like that, just come on up, um, and they'll pray for you during this time. Um, if you didn't get communion on your way in, um, raise your hand. Someone will bring a communion cup over to you. Um, yeah, with that, um, let me pray for us, and the worship team will come back up. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you again. I pray that these words from you um, may not be heard in vain. Let them not fall on deaf ears. God, let your words change us today. Um, I pray that as we go forth, we might live truly as citizens of heaven. Let us not subject ourselves to the patterns of destruction, but God, make us new, make us more Christ-like day after day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.